We have a unique opportunity this morning of hearing from Derek Metcalf. We haven't, haven't held, had Derek up here preaching, bringing us God's Word in a number of years, so it's exciting to have Derek back, a part of the church again, and I'm looking forward to hearing from him this morning. So Derek, come and bring us God's Word. Hello. It's, uh, it has been a while, I think. I, w- I was trying to think of the last time I was up here. I think it was January of 2010 possibly, maybe even 2009, but so it's been a while, uh, two and a half years or so. It's, um, it's been a joy for Katie and I to be back at Providence, and it's fun to be uh, back up here. Again, you'll have to be uh, uh, gracious with me because uh, while I was at seminary, I actually haven't really done any preaching, so uh, it's been about two and a half years for me as well. So, uh, But it's a, it's a pleasure to give Matthew a little bit of a break, even as I was preparing for the sermon and all those feelings of anxiety and panic leading up to preaching just made me thankful for what Matthew does every week. And this is me doing this once in a year, and he's doing it every Sunday. So um, I know he would probably love the encouragement. Um, that's This isn't coming from him saying, hey, tell him to, to, to encourage. Maybe, maybe you guys are encouraging him really well. But I just encourage you all the more. What he does is taxing. Um, so let's uh, make sure we're really thankful for him. We're going to look at Genesis 1 this week and next week. In Matthew's absence, what he asked Dave and I to do was to do a short mini-series on work and rest. These two components of all of our lives that make up a large portion of what we do. We could almost say that everything that we do in some sort or another is either work or rest. And so Dave and I are going to play good cop, bad cop. I get the role of good cop. I get to tell you to rest. Next week, Dave's going to tell you to work. So we're going to look specifically at Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's the seventh day of creation where God rests. And this is the fundamental paradigm that establishes our view of human rest when God Rests. But to lead, to, uh, to introduce the passage, I want to read uh, the entirety of Genesis 1. So if you'll bear with me, um, I want to read all of the chapter. And just even as we read this, I, it's so fitting. Skip and I, actually, we, we did not speak this week about what songs to sing, but the songs he chose and the emphases of those first two songs could not have been any more fitting for this morning's message. So, Um, clearly the Lord was helping us out with that song selection. So, Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the the expanse. And it was so. And God, God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together 
into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God said that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. We pray with me. Father, help us recognize even now as we hear that. This is the narrative that you have given us. The inside look of how you went about creating 
this universe. It speaks to us about your greatness. It speaks to us about your wisdom and it speaks to us about your power. Help us see the point of this passage. Open our eyes and may we be affected by it. Give us faith this morning to embrace everything that you are for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so before we jump into the creation week, what I want to do is step back and take five or so minutes and look at the big picture of the Pentateuch. Now, when we say the Pentateuch, what I have in mind is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus, when he refers to the Pentateuch, calls it the law. He never refers to them as individual books. He always refers to it as the law. If you were Hebrew, it would be one book for you, the Torah. Now that's important because what it helps us understand is that what's going on in Genesis in chapter 1 has a lot to do with what's going to happen in Numbers, what's going to happen in Leviticus, what's going to happen in Deuteronomy. And so to understand what's happening here in Genesis, we've got to have an idea of the whole. We've got to understand where Moses is going. And this is an obvious fact, and I don't want to insult your intelligence, but Moses knew where he was going. Oftentimes, I think we think of the inspiration of Scripture something like this. Moses enters a trance, and he, he's got this pen and his paper in front of him, and he's really not sure what's going on. You know, his arm starts moving, and he's like, whoa, check it out, my arm's writing. That's not at all what we say about the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Scripture. What we say is that Moses was an individual who God inspired. He, get, he instructed him in truth, and he gave him skill as an author. And as an author, as a craftsman of language, he goes to work to write a piece of literature. And how he goes about writing that piece of literature is going to indicate how we make meaning out of what it says. And what I mean by that is that in Genesis, we have a very sparse narrative. I mean, we, we could play a game and just say, what else could Moses have told us about that we would have wanted to know about? I'm sure Isaac would have wanted to know about the dinosaurs. I'm sure a lot of us in here who are maybe embroiled in uh, evolution debates would have liked a little bit more information on the biological processes that went into creating the world. But he doesn't give it. Why? That's not really his concern. Moses is, Moses is not writing as a historian. Moses does not have a journal that he's just kind of walking through time saying, on the first day this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. What Moses is doing, he's saying, okay, here I am with this people at this point in history, and this is the message that they need to hear this is the effect that I want to create in them. How can I use all of this material and put it together so that it affects them in the way I want them to be affected? So the question we should be asking Genesis 1 is not so much, what does it say, but what effect does it intend to have on the reader? What is Moses trying to do? 
And I want to give you a quick synopsis of what he's trying to do in the whole book so that we have an idea of what he's trying to do in the beginning of the book. Genesis, like I said, is not a journal. It's not bits and pieces stuck randomly together. Moses is thoughtfully reflecting on the past in light of the present. So here's what we want to ask. What's the Torah about? What is the Pentateuch about? And here's my nutshell answer. It's an exhortation to believe that even in spite of Israel's present failure, in latter days, not present days, in latter days, God will make good on His promise to Abraham and bless the whole world through Abraham's son. It's about God finding a way to get back to the garden. That is the tension that holds the Pentateuch together. After Genesis 2, we're out of the garden, and the question is, can we ever get back there? What Adam and Eve ruined, can that be restored? Is there a way back? And then comes Abraham onto the scene with this promise that through your seed, not just you are going to be blessed, but he is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So what Moses wants to tell us is what God intends to do in latter days. And the reason I say he wants to tell us what he's going to do in latter days and not present day for him is because Moses had a very realistic idea of the audience that he was talking to. In Genesis 31, listen to what Moses says. For I know, this is the end of, this is near the end of Deuteronomy. He's wrapping things up. This is the point where you'd think he'd kind of go for the rah, rah, you know, let's, let's go, let's obey, let's grab this blessing, let's get in the land, and let's get back to Eden. And this is, this is Moses' message. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking Him to anger through the work of your hands. That's right on par with the, the pregame speech that says, you know what, guys? They're a lot bigger. They're a lot faster. You're uncoordinated. You're going to get whooped. So go get them. Moses is not writing to... Typically, we think of Moses as writing to that first generation that's getting ready to go into land. But he's saying, I know your heart. I know humanity. I know that no matter how righteous and how good and how perfect the law is, it is not a means for you to enter God's blessing. And so he looks into the future to these generations that are going to come after to these generations that are going to be born into exile, to these generations that are going to feel the weight of the curse. And this is what he wants them to know and to feel. Let me introduce you to your God. Your circumstance right now, you probably don't feel it. You probably don't, might not even believe me when I tell you but let me tell you about this God that has made a covenant with us as a people. This God who has promised that He will not leave us or forsake us. 
In the beginning, He created the heavens and the earth. Everything. Every molecule, every piece of matter, every neutron, every proton. He created it. And He put it in order. He created spaces. And He separated those spaces. And in those spaces, He created things that perfectly fit in those spaces. For the water, He created fish. For the sky, He created birds. For the ground, He created creeping things and animals. And He created you, humanity, within this perfect structure. He took a mound of chaos and systematically put it together. At each phase, He does what is most and best fitting for creation. Then we get to chapter 2. This is where we're going to camp out. Thus. So day 7, unlike the others, looks back to the first six days. It's a response. The narrative stops its progression and takes time to look back. Thus, looking back generally at all creation and specifically at the appraisal on the sixth day, when God looks at everything and says, this is very good. The heavens and the earth were finished, it tells us. And all the host of him, host of them, the spaces that God had created to inhabit and the things he made to inhabit them were finished. And if there was any doubt, if he were really done, verse 2 clarifies. And on the seventh day, God finished, so again, reiterating, finished his work that he had done. Then in verse 3, he reiterates again. God rested from all his work that he had done, past tense, in creating. He's done. We all know the person who hands out compliments freely, right? That's not God. My mom's like that. If my mom gives me a compliment, I, I just take it with a grain of salt. I mean, that's I love her for it, and she's wonderful, but I know she throws out compliments like they're a dime a dozen. That's not God. If we learn anything from the law material in the Pentateuch, it's that God is a meticulous God. Nothing escapes His eye. No detail is too small. He is never too distracted to notice. A teacher might write very good across the top of a paper with a couple errors, or a parent might applaud their daughter's dance recital as very good, when really it was probably average at best. But not God. He's not just looking at a bit of the picture or most of the picture. He's looking at the entirety of creation when he says, it is very good. And because it's very good for this reason and this reason alone, it's finished. There was nothing left to add. That's what finished here means. There's nothing left that could be added. There's no detail missing, no stroke that needed to be adjusted. Everything, heaven and earth and all its hosts, could not be improved upon. It was very good, thus it was finished. Last summer when Katie and I moved back to Kansas from North Carolina, we initially moved in with my parents. The house that we were set to live in 
uh, still had some work that it needed to get done on it before we could move in, like getting a toilet in a one-bathroom house, having a toilet actually in places fairly critical before moving in. Yet there were other projects that we would have liked to get done, but that weren't necessary. Time and circumstances dictated that we move in prior to completing everything but the necessities. Yet to some degree, we are able to look at it and say, finished, at least for now. What we meant was this. This is all we have time, energy, and money for right now, and it's good enough for us. But that's not what it means for a perfect being with a meticulous standard to say, it's finished. Good enough is not in God's vocabulary. He finishes when the job is done. He's not hindered by resources, energy, or time. Even the most lavish buildings that we build could not be improved upon, or that even the most lavish buildings we build can be improved upon. Budget, technology, space all restrict us from ever getting to the point where we can really say with anything, there's nothing left I could do. But God reaches that point and says, it's finished. It's done. Those of you waiting in the future for God to act, which is us, right? We, we, we know He's acted in time and space on our behalf in His Son, Jesus Christ. But we join those generations of Israelites who waited. Think, how long, O oh Lord, will you delay? Right? This isn't the end game, right? The end game isn't here now in a fallen world. The end game is when God comes back and says, Enough. Kicks out evil, kicks out sin, and fully and finally restores His creation. That's the end game. That's what we're waiting for. I mean, the, this passage we read in Hebrews. I mean, the book of Hebrews, the whole theme is, look to the future. Lift up your eyes. There's so much more than right now. And so we join those many in history who Moses had in mind when we read Genesis 2 and he says, your God, when he gives a gift, he does it right. The creation he created, he did right. There was nothing missing. There was no detail that was forgotten. There was nothing that you could possibly dream of that could have improved upon His creation. And that's the irony of the fall, right? Because what's the deception? He's leaving something out. And that's the, the irony of every time we make a decision to concede to our sinful impulses, right? If God really would have, would have added this in His design, then it would be better. He left something out. You really need it. What He's given is not good enough. It's not complete. It's 
Then we come to our word, rest. In the middle of verse 2. So God finishes his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day. The word that appears in your Bible is rest is the Hebrew word Shabbat. You might recognize it. It's the verb form of what would later become the noun Sabbath. Consistently throughout the early writings of Scripture, the verb Shabbat refers not to physical recuperation, but cessation. For example, in Leviticus 26.6, God promises to remove harmful beasts, i.e. make them cease. They're not going to come anymore. In Joshua 5.12, the manna ceases appearing. It Shabbats, it stops. In Exodus 5.5, Pharaoh is enraged at Moses because when he comes back to, to Pharaoh and asks for the people to go, the people stop working. They cease working. So to Shabbat really is not to rest. As we think of rest, it's to cease. He stops, he backs up, and he looks. Like an artist who had just put the final touches on a masterpiece. It's a little bit like reaching the end of an engrossing novel, right? You're, you're pulled into the story, you almost feel like you're a part of that world, and you, you don't want to let that world go, but you know there's coming a time where you're going to reach that last page, and you've got to leave that world. And if it doesn't have a sequel, then you've got to put it aside and you're done. You get to the end, you get to the last page, you close the cover... You cease. You're done. There's nothing more for you to read. That's the idea here. Again. So this is our fourth repetition, the fourth component of this verse that is pointing to this one simple fact. And really that's the, there's one thing we go away with, it's this simple fact. What God gives is enough. And what He's going to give in the future is enough. And so even the prophecy that Patty had for us, if you're that person who there's something in your life right now that is consuming you, you think, I've got to have this. You don't. You don't. Because God Himself is enough. The God of Israel who has promised to restore his creation, is himself the God of creation. There was no good thing left out of creation. It was lacking nothing. The sun was the perfect distance from the earth to provide the most conducive climate for life to flourish. The tilt and rotation of earth were ideal for the rhythm of the seasons. The ratios of the gases that compose the atmosphere were ideal. Their density and composition perfectly suited for animal and plant life. The physical and chemical properties of water were such that without them, life could not survive. And we could keep going. There is no lack, no defect. Then in verse 3, God blesses the seventh day. He causes His creation to flourish. That's the idea of blessing. He causes it to flourish, become rich and establishes a unique relationship with it. Holy throughout the Pentateuch typically means that something retains some sort of special relationship to God Himself. The tabernacle is holy because 
God dwells there. The items of the tabernacle are holy because they are the items that are used in God's holy place. Israel is called a holy people, a set-apart people, because by covenant they are joined to God as His people. He makes it holy. This is not a command to keep Sabbath here on day 7. There's no command here to keep Sabbath. That's going to come in the law material later on. To keep it holy, to make it holy, is that God creates a unique relationship with the seventh day. So what does that mean? I think if I point out one more thing, I think it will help make it clear. What happens at the end of every single day leading up to day seven? At the end of day one, there was morning and there was evening. Day one. Day two. There was morning and there was evening. Day two. And there was morning and there was evening. Day three, four, five. And there was morning and there was evening. Day six. And we get to the seventh day and there was morning. Where's the morning? No. There's no evening. Obviously, he's done it six times in a row. He's meaning it to be there and he stops. Why? Why does he stop? The seventh day was never meant to end. The seventh day of creation is when God establishes a unique relationship with his creation and says, I will be your people. I will bless you and you will live under my care. I will be your provider. I will be your king. I will be your father. But the Sabbath does end, right? So the seventh day of creation, what's it about? It's about a God who provides for his people perfectly and lavishly withholding no good. And it's about the place God did provide for them and will again in the future. This then becomes our paradigm for understanding rest. And if you're tracking with me, you've, you're like, you know, isn't this supposed to be, a, be about rest? I haven't said anything about rest yet. You know, isn't this a sermon about how I'm supposed to rest? When are we going to get to that? The seventh day is about God. That's exactly what we need to understand about the biblical notion and idea of rest. It's not about you. I could stand up here and I could give you a speech about all the scientific data that proves that people who sleep eight hours a day are more effective during the day. And I could give you a speech about how land, when it lies fallow, the nutrients are nourished and it actually is more effective to let land lie fallow. And we could talk all about the physiology of rest. But ultimately, those are the fringe benefits of rest. Because this is what rest is about. When Israel, later on in the law, we're just going to look at this real briefly, is commanded to keep the Sabbath, they are being commanded to remember what life in covenant, what life with God in covenant is like. They are being commanded to be both like God and unlike God in the command to keep the Sabbath day holy. 
like him in the act of cessation, but unlike him in the reason. God ceases because he's creator. You cease because you're not the creator. You cease because you are created. You cease because you are not God. And that's what the Sabbath for Israel was supposed to do. Going through your week, forgetting about God, Sabbath day comes. Remember who you are, Israel? You remember who you belong to? Do you remember that you are not God? Exodus 31 says this, Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day rested and was refreshed. Thus the Sabbath command to halt, to cease activity, to cease labor, to cease work, to cease striving. In one port description in Exodus, it uses the language, cease all of your pleasure. Because what is work? Work generally is anything we do to accomplish something, to produce something. So God says, stop producing because I will produce for you. So for Israel, this was huge. I mean, in an agrarian society, they needed that seventh day to produce. They couldn't skip that seventh day of harvest. They couldn't skip that seventh day of seeding. But God says, watch. You skip it and I will provide. Because there's a lot bigger reality than your effort in this world. And that reality is that there exists right now in time a God who is so intimately close that we would be shocked. I mean, right right now. I mean, isn't like when I get up here to preach, it it messes with me and I because Listen to what we say about God. That His disposition towards us in Christ is that He makes Himself our Father. And that His power and His wisdom indicates that He can do whatever He wants. So why do I get so worried? Why do I rush around in this rat race every week when this God who created a garden that I can't even imagine and who's promising to come and do it again is going to? For Israel, the command for them was to quit laboring at anything that was work. Leisure might even fall into this category. Because what are we doing? When I, pl- when I go out and I exercise, I'm producing something for me to gain something from it. 
They were to believe as it was always meant to be that God would be their provider and good. Isn't this the story throughout the Old Testament? I mean, every single story, the story of Jericho, the story of David, and it goes on. You just sit there and I'll do everything. Moses, you raise your hand and I'll give you the victory. You guys, you march around the city, not because marching around the city and blowing horns really makes walls fall down, but because I'm God and I can do those things if I want to, when I decide I want to. They were to stop and reorient themselves, to cease from toilsome labor and celebrate. Isn't that amazing? I mean, if we wanted to, we could compare Israel with all the gods of the ancient Middle East. And all of these other countries in the ancient Middle East had their own gods. And there was all this system of tribute that they had to pay toward their God. Sometimes it was human sacrifice. What's God's tribute? This is, this is how I want you to show me tribute. I want you to rest so I can do everything for you. I mean, is, is that not indicative of the generous, lavish nature of the love of God? When countries make up gods for themselves, they've got to make up these meanies that say, kill your kids or I'm going to kill you. What does God say? This is how you will show your faithfulness to me. You'll stop and you'll feast and you'll laugh and and you'll enjoy each other's company. And for that one day, you'll remember that everything you need, I have given and am able to give and in the future will give again. This is the type of rest Israel was commanded to keep. So what, is that, what does that do for us? So three questions. I want to take all that information that we just gained and I want to ask three questions and then we'll conclude with this. What is rest? Why do we rest? How do we rest? What is rest? Why do we rest? How do we rest? What is rest? Rest, like we've said over and over, is ceasing. It is intentionally hitting the pause button of life to stop and remember the big story. So we don't get lost in our little story. It is laying to the side for a time the work God has appointed for us, which is good work. Don't hear me saying that our, the rest God calls us to in any way contradicts the work that he calls us to. There's a time for work and there's a time for rest. So as, as important as our work is, there's times where he says, stop. Rest is reestablishing our equilibrium, if you will. It is a decided, regular act of the will to trust in God and not in ourselves. It is ceasing for a moment, whether it be from the difficult or pleasing aspects of our lives, so that we might remember who and what we are. Rest is both the physical, literal cessation of work and the psychological cessation of anxiety and worry. We learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives, is the recognition that I'm not God. This job that I want, 
You can do it. If you ask me to rest, I'll rest. This work, this piece of work that I feel like I've got to get done, you don't got to. Why do we rest? Why do we cease? Simply put, it lets God be God. When I refuse to stop working, I am saying that I believe that my works are ultimate and that they are necessary and that I've got to have or accomplish whatever it is I believe I need to do. When I refuse to stop, I put myself in the place of God and refuse to trust that the creator of the world will provide for me. So, any workaholics out here? Just can't find time to stop? You think you've got to stay at the office? You don't. There's times to work hard. And there's times to say, I'm not God. I'm not going to get it all done. I'm going to leave. On the other hand, when we do cease... When I stop my work to rest, I allow God to be God. And if there's anything that we can know in Scripture, is that this is how God loves to glorify Himself. Let me do it. Let me be God. Let me provide for you. Keeping Sabbath reminds us that our ultimate hope of rest is not now or in this life, but the life to come. As Christians, we are decidedly a people who believe that this present life is not the end game. My material success or accumulation now is of little consequence in the grand scheme of life. So what do we do? How do we do this? How do we intentionally get ourselves to say, I'm going to stop. And I'm going to give you the way that God gave Israel. I want to encourage you to consider Keeping Sabbath. Now, I, I don't have time the, to go into this fully. I don't believe that we are required to keep Sabbath as Christians. I think there's biblical reason to believe that, and historically the early church didn't believe that. And I think there's very good reasons why the early church didn't. The early church was on the heels of Jewish legalism. And so for them, it was a great temptation for legalism. But for us, I think our temptation is more to forget about God and to not take seriously His command to cease. Katie and I um, have begun when Matthew asked me to, to preach on rest and I started to think about how I wanted to approach it and wanted to approach it from the angle of Sabbath. Uh, I really hadn't thought about Sabbath all that much before. Um, I had not practiced Sabbath. I had never been in a context where we did practice Sabbath. But we began on occasion to practice Sabbath. We'd, we'd have a special meal on Friday nights. Um, or on, we would practice the Christian Sabbath, so a special meal on Sunday, Saturday night to welcome the Sabbath. And then we would say, no work. I'm going to rest. One of the trying times came when, so most of you know that recently I, I went through this process of applying for this job and the part of the application process was a like 15 essay questions that I had to complete. And at the time when I recognized that the job was open, um, it was probably close to being 
where they were going to fill it. I had to get it done. I wanted to get it done on Monday. And I didn't get it done on Saturday. I had a lot of work to do. And so there I am on Sunday. And I, I can make a, you know, a caveat, right? I mean, this is important. Be great for our family. It's not a law. I don't want to be legalistic. But what I was being asked to do at that moment by that those set of essay questions from that page it was talking to me and saying Derek you know you've got to do this if you don't do this you might not get this job if you don't act now then then the, the opportunity could vanish from before you if you don't take matters into your own hands now it come on it's it's just one Sunday, let it go. And in that moment, this is not at all to pat myself on the back. Just decide, you know what? Ultimately, what what is this application that they're going to receive from me compared to the sovereign king of the universe who says, let there be light and there's light, deciding to act? I mean, is there any competition? Not in my mind. And I needed, I needed that law in my life to say, trust in the Lord, not in yourself. So that's my invitation to you. I mean it as an invitation. Would you consider thinking about practicing Sabbath? Consider taking an intentional day and saying, I will intentionally choose to trust God and not my own efforts. But I don't want to conclude with advice. I want to conclude with the most dramatic conclusion in history, and you probably know where I'm going. After years of waiting, thousands of years of waiting, God sends another son besides the line of Israel, who was his first son, right, who failed. And he sends this son to make good on his promise to overcome sin and the curse and restore blessing for all the peoples of the world. After a relatively short career as a teacher, he gets nailed to a block of wood to die. And now, with the seventh day of creation in mind, listen to what he says. It is finished. It's done. There's nothing left that I have left undone. What I am doing now is for the restoration of the entire cosmos. And it is finished. So now we wait. Believing that a future Sabbath rest awaits all who trust not in themselves who trust not in their faithfulness to the covenant, but in another's faithfulness to the covenant. So I invite you this morning to cease, to put aside your present and immediate circumstances, whether good or bad, and consider our confession. By the sacrifice of the eternal God, you have been joined in covenant relationship to the only transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise, sovereign God, of the universe. And his promise to his people has always been, I'm not done yet. 
I will be your God. I will labor for you. The bitterness you experience now pales in comparison to the beauty that will overwhelm you when I make good on my promises. And likewise, the pleasures that distract you now, that tempt you to forget about this promise, are but shadows, glimpses of the pleasures that will utterly overwhelm your senses then. So don't love them too much. Cease. Be still. Stop striving. And so here's our Sabbath theology in a nutshell. Whatever it is you think you need, you don't. And I don't mean to sound uh, uncaring, because I know there's people in this room who are going through extremely difficult situations. But if you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to the creator of the universe. And his promise is, is he's working for you. Let's pray.